Today's sermon is entitled The Lord's Temple. And again, we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20, as Paul begins to uh, actually he continues uh, what he was addressing in chapter 5 of this uh, continuous letter as he has identified that there was sexual immorality taking place in the life of the church. And he's identified that it has happened in such a perverse nature uh, so as to uh, distinguish the Corinthian fellowship from the Gentiles at large, who were certainly guilty of sins of a perverse nature, but they were not guilty of trying to pretend that they served the Lord while committing those sins. And so Paul sees this sin as very much a grievous one. And I believe that you're still following the line of the effects of the factions that uh, we saw in First Corinthians chapter one, as also Paul brings them up in chapter three. And then we begin to see that residual effect take place in the life of the church as the believers there are uh, even putting their own uh, salvation in question, as well as you see the lawsuits that are beginning to uh, take place in the life of the church where believers are suing each other. And so Paul has an issue and believes that immorality is the reason for which the Corinthian fellowship is being disrupted and disturbed. And this immorality, I don't want you to mistake it for only the general sense. There is a general sense in which immorality is the case in the world before us, and also it can creep into the life of the church. But when this immorality is addressed by Paul, he's specifically referring to sexual immorality. It had run rampant in the life of the Corinthians, I believe societally, because they had so much uh, woven together the fabric of their false religions to sexual promiscuity, such as having uh, temple prostitutes who conferred with so-called worshipers. And this was an expression of worship to the pagan gods. And so you have here, it was either those who were practicing sexual immorality or those who were permitting it. And so Paul sees both as just as guilty. And we saw that when we went through 1 Corinthians chapter 5. They were also, as we will see in the text that follow, wrangling and debating about the trivial matters pertaining to food and nourishment versus the role of food and worship. And you'll see that as we begin to progress forward from chapter 6 throughout the rest of this letter that certain issues come up. But I believe that even as they were wrangling about words and also trying to nuance Paul's visit while trying to in some way mock Paul for not being present among them, it was all to cover their sin. And it wasn't to cover their sin in love or repentance, but it was to cover uh, the deeds that they were performing that were treacherous against the holy God. Paul wanted them to understand a few points. He wanted them to understand two points that I believe you and I uh, will not only be looking at in this text, but by the time we wrap up this text, I believe he will have answered uh, the questions that should be in our minds as we launch into verses 12 to 20. The first question is, who gave them their bodies? Who gave them their bodies? That's the first question, because if the answer is I have given myself my body or I'm created from some random process uh, or I come from slime or animals, uh, then I can do whatever I please with my body. So the first question that Paul wants them to understand and to answer and identify for themselves 
is who gave them their bodies. And then along with that, which is always along with this, is what was the purpose of their bodies. So what were they to do with the bodies that they possessed? They had been, as I mentioned, as a society, even some in the church, offering themselves to sexual immorality, which speaks of their infidelity and unfaithfulness to the Lord. You always see the two hand in hand, even as you read through the prophets. Isaiah speaks this way. Uh, When we look at Malachi, Malachi launches into a tirade against the priesthood that was right. He was a prophet rebuking them. And then in the middle of that rebuke, almost out of nowhere, he says, God hates divorce. And he's speaking of this infidelity of the heart toward one's spouse as a temperature gauge of one's infidelity toward the Lord. So idolatry and adultery are very closely aligned. And I would say interwoven together. And Paul speaks that way in this text. But the problem was that they belonged to those things. The Corinthians at large belonged to these sins. And the reason I say that is if you look at verse 5 of 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, when Paul says it has been reported that there is immorality among them. Verse 2, he says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. There was an indifference to this. There was an apathy. There was a sense in which that this had become so normalized and such as the expectation that it was permitted and and they were all accomplices for allowing this sin to run rampant in their midst. And so they belong to these things. And a lot of what Paul is trying to weed out in their hearts is, are you truly believers? Will you turn from the sins that cause disfellowship with one another and disfellowship with God and with Christ? They had in the past, in recent past, if we looked at 1 Corinthians 1 again, demonstrated features of being born again, the new birth. They had demonstrated it. But the past demonstration has to align to the future uh, walk with Christ as well. And so they had to be presently walking with Christ, presently persisting in holiness in him. It wasn't enough that they had done it for a time or had a reputation for a time, but they had to consist. uh, Their lives had to consist of holiness and they had to be persistent in that holiness over time. And so they needed to understand in line with our two questions that we pose, who gave them their bodies and what was the purpose of their bodies? They needed to understand they had not purchased themselves. They had not purchased themselves and therefore they could not do as they pleased with themselves or among themselves. So this is related uh, particularly to verses 12 and 13 uh, in this particular chapter As Paul had dealt with it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 12 he says all things are lawful for me. Especially as a society grows more perverse and more indecent. Its laws become the same. And so that may be lawful to do. uh, That which may be lawful to do doesn't mean that it will not lead you to slavery. And so that's what Paul is addressing. He says all things are lawful for me. Especially he's speaking as a Christian, but not all things are profitable. So just because something is invoked by the laws of the land or by magistrates and that it is not against the law, so to speak. The question is, is it spiritually profitable? So as you can see, nobody came in and arrested uh, the those who were sinning in this way. Nobody came in and said, hey, 
uh, from society, hey, you have taken your father's wife and therefore you're under arrest. That was normal practice in the life of the world system and also especially in the Greco-Roman Empire. But what Paul is saying is that's a lawful act in this society because society is perverse. However, is it profitable? Is it a profitable act? All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So now he's talking about the occasion before us whereby you have fallen men instituting laws that may at times strike against God. And therefore, one may subject themselves to law, but you cannot subject yourself to slavery embedded in some of the laws. And so Paul is saying that and he begins with food. He begins with food. But it is still important to note that he begins before that with slavery. He begins with slavery. He begins with the idea of mastery, not being mastered, not being overcome, not, be, not being ushered into slavery with respect to the sin that would befall those who uh, claim to be in Christ. So it is clear that the sacrifice of Christ for his elect, and not only this, but his substitutionary atonement, and yet his also being raised for their sanctification, granted new life to the believer. That's clear. Well, where is that clear from? Verse 11, such were some of you, he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified. This deals with the resurrection power that he'll refer to in our text this morning. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So now Christ has been raised from the dead and that same power has calls for your justification. It has calls for your sanctification being cleansed and you will be made like him and see him in glory by your glorification. But in this life, you have you have the resurrection power of Christ to live holy. He'll spend a lot of time dealing with that. And he's clear on that point. He doesn't necessarily sway between two opinions. He doesn't say it's okay to be mastered at times. He says it is never okay to be mastered and to subject yourself to things that would take you away from your justification. Or that would call into question your sanctification. And so that is a sober reminder, I believe, for each one of us individually. And although the believer then possessed the liberty in Christ to do all things, because so many conceive of Christianity as a set of rules that is highly restrictive. It was the lie in the Garden of Eden. And it is the lie today with respect to the Christian life. The Christian is free to do just about anything he or her wants to do. However, the Christian is not free to be mastered by those things which would cause for an occasion to sin. So when you conceive of Christian freedom, the Christian can do anything, but it's not necessarily right or profitable to do anything. And that would be what Satan used against Adam and Eve in the garden. They were free to do anything they wanted and partake of anything they wanted in the garden, except for that one thing. That one thing that could master them, and that was not necessarily the fruit that, they, uh, that, Ad, uh, that Adam received from his wife after she ate, but it was that that they were now surrendering the will. And in doing so, they are then slaves. And so Paul says, with respect to your Christian liberty, you are free. You don't have to tiptoe and walk around like the Gnostics do. You don't have to live your life in some proverbial bubble. He says you're free, but do not be mastered. Do not cause yourself to sin, he'll later say in Corinthians, I'm paraphrasing him, and do not cause others to sin. 
So you are free. You are truly free as a Christian. And I believe that that is a, a great encouragement. But you are not free to engage in immorality. You are not free. You are constrained to live a righteous life, which presents all kinds of freedoms. And so that's how he's trying to get them to think as they use their bodies for the honor and glory of God. So the believer did not possess the liberty to do anything that would cause for enslavement. The believer did not possess liberty to do anything that would be a cause for enslavement. And this includes being a slave to sexual immorality or being a slave to immorality within that spectrum of all perverse types. Why Paul brings up food, he talks about food being for the stomach and the stomach for food. I don't believe he's only speaking in analogy because he'll deal with the role of food in the idea of worship. It's not simply bringing in an illustration point. I believe he's dealing with it because, again, when one is in this type of sin and when one is sinning uh, with self-imposed impunity, what then tends to happen is they begin to major in areas that are trivial, truly trivial. I'm not talking about creating a a man-made, synthetic, wicked triage uh, to put doctrine into categories, but I'm saying that they begin to trivialize matters that the Bible presents as freedom. The point that Paul is making is you can eat what you want, but while you're arguing about eating, you're also practicing sexual immorality. So it really doesn't matter whether you constrain your diet or not. It doesn't matter how healthy you look, how healthy you are, because that's the world we live in. It's a big health cult that everyone wants to prolong their lives, but really they're just prolonging their lives to sin. And what Paul is saying is that's foolish thinking because God's going to destroy your food and your stomach. Because we don't live for this temporal life, but he's saying you're destroying yourself quicker whether you put something in your mouth or not by engaging in sexual immorality. You're destroying yourself. You're destroying the temple, not by what you eat or don't eat, but by the perverse acts that you're doing and the built in consequences therein. So what he's teaching them in verse 13, I believe, is instead of trying to submit to a consecrated to a consecrated diet while practicing immorality with their members, Paul wanted them to eat what they please with a free conscience, but also to practice righteousness given to them in Christ by the Father. That's what he wanted. It doesn't seem as confusing when we look at it that way, because you may ask yourself, why does he jump from food and digestion to immorality? Well, because they were very meticulous about their diet. Remind you of the Pharisees. Remind you of the Sadducees, the scribes. Remind you of the modern evangelical. Remind you of the, uh, the health cults of people who are simply living immoral lives and sinful lives, but, but they're very healthy outwardly. Paul is saying away with that. There's no need to monitor that if you're not going to be uh, one who is holy. And so he is teaching them not to wrangle about food and diets while practicing immorality because the freedom comes from doing the will of God in holiness. That's where the freedom comes from. And so he wants them to eat what they please with a free conscience. And he'll talk about this much later. I believe he comes back to these points 
at various points. But the temple of the Lord, which the body is, was not for desecration, but rather for consecration. He says that. And I believe that at each point you and I have discussed, even as we were looking at 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 4 and beginning to move our way into this text, we discuss the role of thinking about people not only made in God's image, but thinking about fellow believers as the church. Because that is how Paul points to our fellowship, one to another together, that we are here in bodily form together. We are certainly here in spirit, but we're here in bodily form. And because we're in Christ and because we're born again in him, we then constitute the church. We are the church. And it's not merely that we're an expression of the church, but being gathered together in him, we are the church. The church is comprised of people. It's not simply buildings. It's not the edifice. Because I believe what is happening in modern religion, especially modern evangelical religion, is so many are doing so much to dress up the edifice. And they point you to the edifice and tell you that that is what is holy. And that when you set foot in that place, that therefore you are then presented as holy no matter how you're living. But really what it is, is the person is 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 uh, indwelled by the spirit of God and they are holy and they are coming into a place gathered together with other holy, righteous believers. And they therefore make up the church, Christ being their head. So it's not so much the building in the edifice and the structure, but it is how are we building up the new man? And therefore, we are demonstrating that we are the church. And I believe that's why Paul makes it plain that the body is the temple of the Lord. Because the building as it is, as beautiful as some of them may be, without people in them, they're just buildings. They serve no purpose. What he's about to say here is that you in bodily form as a believer, he says it to the Corinthians, but I believe it applies to us. You in bodily form, you practice things with your members. And he's calling them to practice that which accords with God's will. We already talked about some of the Instances where he mentions the giftedness that we possess, that we ought to be practicing toward one another. But that's an expression of church fellowship, practicing the gifts toward one another. And so when he gets to the perversion of their gifts, I believe in your mind, you can go back to this point that everything is lost and perverted when you have rampant immorality running in people's lives. Everything is perverted. They will desecrate The Lord's table. They will desecrate the fellowship. They will desecrate and misuse one another in these ways. But Paul's point is it was not for desecration, but again, for consecration. You get that sense this morning as we read numbers, just the Lord's holiness, but also his holiness and his precision. He is very precise. He says, this is how I want it built. This is what you must bring to my construction. This is who is permitted to enter into the presence of my uh, of my tabernacle. This is who who is permitted to worship in my tabernacle. How much more so than him dwelling in us, him dwelling in us and us being presented uh, before him and before one another. It was useless for them to simply talk about the resurrection, because I think that you're dealing with a religious church 
I really do believe that they were a religious people. I don't believe that they were a secular people. I believe that they were certainly divided in their allegiance, but I do believe that they were trying to be religious. Now, I believe that they were sincerely wrong in many of their attempts to be religious. And I say that because Paul brings up the resurrection. He brings up the resurrection. You see it here. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, so he connects it to the point before and he speaks in such a way as it's something they ought to know and that they already know. So he doesn't go into this long diatribe or this long discourse about the resurrection. He's speaking to them as though they already know it. He's speaking to them in the same way he did in First Corinthians chapter one. But he says essentially that the Lord is risen. God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. So to finish what I'm saying, it's not useless to talk about the resurrection simply. It's useless to simply talk about the resurrection and live as though they were dead in their sins. It's useless because that is and will always be the issue. It is the fact that they are dead in their sins and yet everyone is talking about the risen Christ. But it's useless to them. It's not useless to Christ and it certainly isn't useless to Christians. But it does misrepresent his power. It is then the question we must ask ourselves in conjunction with the questions we have already posed about the body. That is... Do we believe that we have Christ's resurrecting, uh, resurrecting power in our sanctification? Because we have just got done going through what I believe is a commercial holiday for much of the religious West of Easter. And so many talk about Christ's resurrecting power as this commercial thing, as this theater production. But really his resurrecting power is eternal. And you see it in features of the Christian life, or you should. And that's how Paul speaks of it. Christ is risen, and he is risen indeed. But that's not simply an annual celebration. It is the daily power, and this is how Paul explains it if you look at that verse. It is the daily power that sustains the Christian's walk and consecrates our conscience our whole being, who we are as holy before God. It sustains our walk and it presents us. It consecrates us. The resurrection power, it establishes and ensures righteousness is functioning within us at all times. That's the resurrection power. It's not simply a statement and then everybody take pictures and then we leave. It is actually what sustains us from a wicked world that's trying to take us out. From an adversary trying to take us out. From a flesh that's warring against us in the new man. So I say that today's problem is certainly the problem of the Corinthians. So many speak as though Christ is alive. They do speak as though he is. But live as though he did not conquer the grave. Or they live as though he conquered the grave on an annual basis. But let us not fall into the errors of the Corinthians. We are not only in Christ and Christ in us, but we are joined to him. And this is what Paul wants us to know about the temple of the Lord being our bodies. We are joined to him. 
We then are serving him as though being one with him and he through us and doing his will as he commands us to do his will. This is not restrictive, restrictive. This is the greatest freedom. His will then, as is said in verse 15, his will for us is listed uh, in, in, I would say, both the positive and rhetorically. But also in the negative. But his will for us is not to take our members and join them to harlots and prostitutes. Those who earn their wages in life's work is simply providing illicit services to the highest bidder. Look at verse uh, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now he's identifying the answer to the question. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? So you can't do both. If you're serving the prostitutes, then you're no longer using your members to serve Christ. If you're using your members to serve Christ, you're no longer using your members to serve the prostitutes. I believe he means this in a literal sense and representative of what prostitutes perform. He says, may it never be. May it never be. Verse 16, or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. There is a negative and a positive to that statement that I believe defines a marital union as God intended. Verse 16, really what he's saying, it's either the Corinthians, if they were immoral, are joined to the prostitute. And if they are moral, meaning righteously so, eternally righteous uh, in their walk before the Lord, then they are joined to the great bridegroom. Immorality, then, is a perverse thing. And that's how Paul deals with it. He deals with it as a perverse and devastating thing. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. I think that's the first way in which you see how devastating sexual immorality is and how devastating it was to the life of the church in Corinth. Because he says the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So you can't join yourself to immorality and also be of kindred and same spirit. And you then can't join yourself to the Lord and be one spirit with him. You can't do it. It's impossible. This spiritual dynamic of our sanctification is spelled out in the clearest of terms. It is on the matter of allegiance and faithfulness. It is a perverse thing. It is a devastating thing to the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. It is a devastating thing. The one who sins in this way joins his or herself to the ones who sin in this way. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this, and I know that we have talked about it here, but I believe that's why the Constitution of Man is so important. I believe that's why people want to do away with the inner man. And only want to make it about the soul and the spirit and make those things a combined entity. You know why? Because you can sin from the basis of your emotions. And there's no consequence with relegating that to how it impacts the inner man. But Paul doesn't go to emotions. He says, look at the inner man. You are taking that and joining it with the sin that you're performing Or in your walk, you're joining it with Christ. 
He's not saying, oh, it's simply your emotions. He's not saying it's religious affections. He's not saying it's desires. He's saying it's your person. The inner man is either being renewed daily or is being killed and destroyed and will be judged in the fires of hell. It's not just your emotions or your soul or how you feel or bodily. It is all those things. And I believe that he says it even in the language. He says it in a way that tells us he's talking about that spirit man. He's talking about the inner man. He's talking about how the man functions. But I would also say the adverse is true because it's why so many so-called churches permit this stuff to continue. Because they think it's just a matter of the emotions. They think it's just the, the, the desires that are on trial. They don't see it as so dangerous as to expel anyone. And they certainly don't see it as spiritual disloyalty because you have then joined your spirit to that which you're performing. So you are no longer in Christ at that point. You're giving evidence that you never were, but you no longer are. And that's what Paul is saying. And he ties it not only to sanctification, because it's easy to talk about the emotions and sanctification. And we are touched with profound emotions. Don't get me wrong. But I'm saying that what he goes to is justification. Your justification. You being raised up with Christ, you have a new spirit in you. You have a new spirit in you. The old spirit is gone. But the principle of the old man is certainly working in you to fight against you and to fight against your new alliance. But he doesn't simply say that you're joined to the sins you commit. He says your spirit is joined to the sins you commit. So I believe it is important. He says the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. One spirit with him. Look at verse 16. He says, do you not know the one who joins himself to the prostitute is one body with her? Well, is it only body? No, he's talking about the fleshly acts that cause great devastation to the body, soul and the spirit. He's talking about these sins that are committed in such a way so as to attempt to attack and unsuccessfully dethrone God's justifying and sanctifying work in a person's life. It is truly an unholy alliance. The flesh is bonded together for those who sin in this way and join themselves to one another and sin this way. The flesh is bonded together in a pact of destruction headed to hell. The flesh is, is bonded together. You see this. Language also in the Proverbs. You see this language in the Proverbs. For the Proverbs, they speak of those who are to avoid the adulterous woman. But verse 17, we've read that. Look at verse 18. Flee immorality. Now, before we spell that out, the other side of this is true as well. What does it mean then to be joined to the Lord? What does it mean to be joined to the Lord? Because I don't believe that you just arrive at the point of what Paul is referring to in this particular text. I don't believe that one day you're just walking and you're living righteously and you find yourself in the company of harlotry. 
Remember what I said. Adultery and idolatry are interwoven together. The prophets speak this way. So how did they get here? Because I think that's important to know as well. Well, it's not only you want them to flee being joined to harlots, but they shouldn't be joined to other men and women in faction. Because it's a wrong view of men and women. And when you view them wrongly, you will then begin to act perversely. So it is to be joined to men and women in faction, in personality cultism and hero worship. I believe that's how people arrive to this point. That's how people arrive at scandal and immorality of this nature. Because they're worshiping one another. They've taken their eyes off Christ and they are then worshiping one another. And when you worship one another, you have to consummate that worship. You have to consummate that idolatry by committing what has already taken place in your heart. That is spiritual idolatry against God. You then perform physical idolatry with one another. I'm saying that in succession because that's where Paul goes first. Paul doesn't say this first and then speak of everything else. But it answers a question for you. You know why so many of these so-called churches lack power? I'm not picking on them. I'm being honest with you about them. But so many of them lack power because they never get to the business of rebuking hero worship and idolatry, self-idolatry or idolatry, idolatry of man. And so when they have to deal with immorality, they don't identify where it started. It's either they don't want to identify where it started or they are deceived to think that that is not the reason it has begun in the way it has. It's why in the Ten Commandments, it's listed there. It's listed there not to have idols, but it's also listed there not to perform idolatry. These things are all tied together. And I believe that Paul is helping the Corinthians and us see that one leads to another. And he wants them to be vigilant. Instead, he wants them to be joined to him. He wants them to be joined to him. It is to be one spirit with him. It's not simply that the body can lay down with the harlot. It is that you're joined to the harlot in consummating what is already taking place in your spirit. Paul pictured entrapment. He pictured entrapment and pursuit that we must flee. He says flee immorality. He doesn't say think about it. He doesn't say play with it. He says flee immorality. It is a pursuit that we must flee. There are many things that we must fight and there are many ways in which we must fight. I believe that this is a way to fight. That sometimes you have to retreat. And you don't retreat for the purpose of retreating as an end goal. You retreat to live righteous. You retreat to perform what you ought to perform with your members of your body. So that is this fleeing from immorality, this particular sin. And the reason I believe he says this is because this particular sin you're striking at yourself. So there are certainly sins that strike out against others and have consequences, as all of them do against yourself. But this is striking at yourself. And it's not just yourself in terms of terms such as self-care and all these other things that people like to introduce today psychologically. It's not just that. You're striking against yourself related to being God's temple. So he's saying you're striking against the temple. You're striking against the fellowship. 
So he says, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. One can become angry. And yes, there are self-imposed consequences of anger. And one can lash out in that anger and consummate the act by performing murder. Anger is already murder, but you can consummate the act in murder. Well, that happens outside of your body. He says sexual immorality is something you're taking into your body. And they understood this concept. You want to know how I know they understood this concept? They understood it in verse 13 about food. So Paul says, why can't you take that and apply it to sexual immorality? You're meticulous about food and dietary restrictions related to worship, but you're careless about how you view sexual immorality. And he's saying, you're showing me you understand because you understand what I put in, into my body has great effects on my body. He says, but you're deceived to think that that is not true about immorality. So then in verses 18 and 19, I believe he truly answers the questions that I had for you in the beginning. The questions that we first discovered together. Who gave them their bodies? And what was the purpose of their bodies? Look at verse 19. Or do you not know? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God? Who you have from God? So their bodies are given to them by God. It is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And he says that you are not your own. So you don't belong to the men and women in whom you uh, invested your factions. You don't belong to them. You don't belong to anyone. You don't belong to the state or the government. He says you belong to God. Your body is not your own. Your body is not your own. And that is a glorious thing because we could have belonged to anyone. And for a time, you and I did belong to the kingdom of darkness. The worst thing that you and I ever did was think at some point in our lives that our bodies belong to ourselves. But that's not true. That's not true. That only causes devastation, eternal judgment. He says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. Well, that means that the church is is comprised of people who in bodily form come together, join in one spirit in Christ and join together in spiritual fellowship, not in morality, spiritual fellowship, a love for Christ, a love for one another, practicing that which accords with those things. I believe it's time for this to have its day so that we can kill Christian consumerism. So-called Christian consumerism. But the purpose of the body, the purpose of the body is to be utilized as a temple of the Holy Spirit, as a temple of the Holy Spirit. For in us, he resides. Paul is clear here. We were not purchased by men. We were not purchased by. By anyone who would chart our course towards sexual immorality and faction or who would cause us to approve of those things. But rather, we were bought with a price. We were bought with a price. And if you really think about this, what Paul is saying is the one who purchased us, the one who purchased us, because Paul is writing about the believer 
we are esteemed as infinitely and eternally valuable. So therefore, why condescend to that which will be destroyed and to that which is self-destructive? The purpose for our bodies then, the purpose for the bodies of the Corinthian church is listed before us in verse 20. For you have been bought with a price. He will say that later as well. But you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That's the purpose for our bodies. That was the purpose for the bodies of those who lived in the time in which Paul is writing. That was the purpose of their bodies in the Corinthian church and of every church and of every believer. Glorify God in your body. It is because we have been redeemed to glorify him, not to glorify man or some man or some conglomeration of men or a conglomeration of women or some institution. He says we are to glorify God in our bodies with the use of it. And when we fail, we confess our sins before God and he is just to forgive us. But it is always the goal before us to be perfecting in this way is what Paul is teaching us and them. But Paul will then get into the clear expression of this. I believe he doubles down in this area. That is what we do with our bodies, whether we are single and joined to God or whether we are joined to another in marriage and yet one flesh in marriage joined to God in Christ. So I want to read that very first part to you. In chapter seven, as we close now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each man is to have. And I'm sorry, each woman is to have her own husband. And he says the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows, that it is a good thing for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. We will look at that next time. Let's pray.